And then we came back in 97, you know, skip a decade. And uh, and one of the main reasons we went back to Taylor Ranch was the opportunity through the Hornacker Institute to do research on cougars in the presence of wolves. That was the, the theme, the thesis, the question was, are these wolves dragging down the number of cougars or, or, and are they interacting? So what did you find? Do cats and dogs get along? Not very well. <laughs> they don't. Dogs are dominant and they treat cats. <laughs> and then cats don't reproduce well. Yeah. That was kind of it in a nutshell. Yeah. These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. The Six Ranch Podcast is brought to you by Sig Sauer. Sig is a leading provider and manufacturer of firearms, electro optics, ammunition, air guns, and suppressors. For over 250 years, Sig Sauer Inc. has evolved and thrived by blending American ingenuity, German engineering, and Swiss precision. Today, Sig Sauer is synonymous with industry leading quality and innovation which has made it the brand of choice amongst the U.S. military, the global defense community, law enforcement, competitive shooters, hunters, and responsible citizens. Sig Sauer is also a premier provider of elite firearms instruction and tactical training at the Sig Sauer Academy located in New Hampshire. For more information about Sig Sauer and its complete line of products, visit SigSauer.com. Okay, so if I was an alien, came here from outer space, and somehow I can speak English, okay. and I come up to you and I say, Jim Akinson, how do you define yourself? What, what makes you who you are? Well, I think that the, probably the first thing I would do would be to point at the Wallow Mountains and say, I'm connected with that landscape, even though I happen to live right here in this valley by a stream that that's where my heart is, is up there, which might be kind of confusing to an alien because <laughs> they're probably expecting a response relative to here, like, oh, I'm a farmer, I'm a gardener, I'm a rancher, but my connection is to the mountains. And, and my connection to these mountains goes a long ways back, actually to the 60s when uh, my parents used to come to Willow Lake on summer vacations. And I actually caught my first limit of trout out of Lava Lake and either, I think it was 1968, so. Do you recall what the limit was then? Oh, I'm sure it was 10 yeah. at that time, yeah. It seemed like it was 10 forever. Yeah. But it was pretty impressive, and it, it just, I don't know, it just le left a lasting impression. I grew up uh, west of Beaverton on the west side and uh, always uh, strongly preferred eastern Oregon and my father was from Montana, and, and uh, whenever we'd go there, that was my real favorite place. But these mountains and this country here were truly a close second. When I was in the Marines, I would ask everybody where they're from, and I still do. Yeah. Um, and, and that was the only time that anybody ever like pointed it out to me. 
he said, you know, that must be really important to you. Um, and it was my wingman at the time. He said, this, it must be really important to you where you're from because nobody else asks people that. Yeah. And I think for a lot of the country and a lot of the world, perhaps, yeah. it is not part of your identity that the place that you come from or the place that you connect to. But for you and me, it is perhaps the, the largest part of our identity. Yeah. Yep, exactly. And I don't know. You know, I just was always drawn to the outdoors ever since I was able to walk pretty much as near as I can remember. Didn't like to be in a house, preferred to be outside playing, doing something out there, making primitive bows and arrows, which I would think I was doing as a five or six year old. Yeah. And you've bow hunted forever. Yep. Yep. I, I claim my first year of actual hunting, um, as a 12 year old, which was 52 years ago. Wow. Um, and then what was that hunting season like for you? Oh man. Well, back then, of course it was escorted by an adult, Sure, but, uh, my best friend's dad was really, really good about getting his boys, myself uh, and my best friend out pretty much at every opportunity, either in the Cascades or the coast range. And he was an avid sportsman himself, hunter and fisherman, and was kind of intrigued with bow hunting. Um, he really only dabbled into it himself, but he wanted us to try it. So he basically took his places, and, and one of those places um, was just on the east side of Mount Hood on the breaks of the Deschutes River. And that picture I showed you of the big mule span, that was actually one of my very first bow hunting spots. So would you consider archery to be part of your identity as well? Oh, totally, yeah. It always has been. Even, I guess, in a professional sense, you know, when Holly and I lived at Taylor Ranch and ran a field station for the University of Idaho and hosted archaeologists, um, I like to consider myself a expert witness relative to how the sheep eater Indians would have conducted their hunting activities, which were purely bow hunting for bighorn sheep and deer and other species. And how would they have hunted? Well, that's a good question. And this archaeologist, he was looking at the basically the subsistence pattern, the lifestyle of the sheep eater, the Takutika Indians. And that was his research project. And he actually had funding from the National Geographic. It was a pretty major endeavor, and there really hadn't been anything of significance done on the Idaho sheep eaters. And... Um, they really were most known for their bows, which were made out of sheep horn. And that was a huge trade item for them. Did they laminate them? Um, yes, it was a composite bow. And Do you know what they used for glue? I think they used melted down hoof material. Oh, really? I'm presuming so probably from sheep. Yeah, similar to the glue that we use today. Yeah, right. Yep. I know in, in reading um, about Ishii, uh, one of his favorite of all the modern inventions that he was exposed to in his later life was glue. Glue, <laughs> yeah. And he made glue out of salmon skin. Yeah. But you think about all the things that you can fix, that you can solve so yeah. quickly with some JV weld or some super glue oh, or exactly. anything with adhesive. Yeah. Uh, what a luxury to be able to have that. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but I interrupted you. They're making... Um, they're making composite bows with bighorn sheep 
horns. Right. Yeah. And and we found located, and others knew about, a number of ambush points or blinds. Mm-hmm. And once we became familiar with the seasonal movements of sheep, you could see where it was primarily an activity that they would do in the spring. Okay. And then again in the fall rut hmm. um, when the sheep were really concentrated. Obviously, spring for green up and then for breeding behavior in the fall. And they probably use some sort of an organized movement of the sheep herd, perhaps a slow drive of sorts, I'm I'm guessing. What do you think their utilization of dogs was like in hunting? You know, that's a really good question. And that's something, there was dog remains found Mm -hmm. uh, in the excavations that were done there. And it was thought, of course, um, you know, that it was felt that they were used primarily as a pack animal and a guard for the camp. But, you know, what you brought up is is a very good question because I wonder if they didn't use them for flankers or corralers or movers. Blood trailing? Blood trailing would be another, yeah. I mean, that'd be highly important to them. I mean, these these weren't the most lethal. no arrows and broadheads no that way. the earth has ever yeah. seen. There's a lot of wounding going on yeah. and the stakes are high. You, you, yeah. you need this meat. You need it. Yeah. I would have absolutely put a dog on that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, maybe even to finish off. Sure. You know, what's been started. Yeah. But yeah, trailing, all that. Yeah, that's a very good point. And interestingly, in all the conversations that we had, typically uh, around a barbecue pit or at a, we build a sweat lodge there and um, had a lot of evening discussions. I do not remember that coming up. Yeah. You know, mm. it, it may not have come up for me if if I hadn't just used dogs to find an animal in Texas earlier yeah. this year. Oh, yeah. Um, and it was a terrific experience for me. Yeah. yeah. Way better than than, let, to, than losing them and having sure. them rot. And, and, and I, yeah. I, as it turned out, where I stopped the blood trail, I was really close close to where this um, axis buck was. But there was a guy right there on the ranch who had a business blood trailing. And as soon as we shot, he heard us from his house. He said, you want me to get the dogs? (laughs) And uh, this guy I was hunting with, Brandon, uh, he's like, hey, how do you feel about this? I was like, I love dogs. This sounds (laughs) awesome. Like, why not? Like, let's, let's do this as quickly as possible. And uh, in talking with Kirk Scovlin, he, he brought up the, the question as well of whether um, whether Indians were using dogs to, to blood trail animals. Because I recently found a, an arrowhead that was so small. It was so small. Yeah. And I, we often call those bird points. But I don't know if that's the reality of the situation. I, I think that you're very accurate with that statement. And we found those smaller points around these blinds. Yeah. And just randomly shot sure. in the hillsides there on, on Big Creek. Yeah. And no, I think I think that they use those, and there seemed to be kind of a what I would call a medium-sized point that was probably predominant. Mm-hmm. Um, and interestingly, you would you would frequently um, see those in a complete piece, where the smaller ones often broke yeah. quite a bit. So. Yeah, um, I was doing some more research on this point that I found, and it was called the Columbia Plateau point, mm-hmm. and it had a very narrow and long tip right. on it and I've, I've found a lot of these arrowheads 
but I've never found one that was complete like that. The tips were always broken. Yeah. And then looking at the construction of some that have been found, of course that would break almost every right. time you fired it. Yeah, yeah. But for me, getting back to that exposure with the archaeology crew and in thinking a lot about their hunting, of course they couldn't be just dependent upon bighorns. And that big creek, middle fork of the salmon country, is great for mule deer. And, and actually, I think in the excavation work, they found as many mule deer bones as they did big orange sheep. Interesting. So, again, likely capitalizing on the time of the year that they'd migrated in for, I'm, I'm fairly certain, the rut, mm-hmm. the November rut. And it kind of led to a hunting style for me that's different than the norm of spot and stock, which was one of acclimating or having a group of mule deer get accustomed to my presence through seeing a lot of me. And I actually, in my favorite hunting spot, would spend two weeks prior to the beginning of the season up there, I called it scouting, but what I was really doing is getting the the does habituated to my presence. And if they're accepting of my presence when a big buck comes around and the does don't spook from me you know your probabilities really increased and i would say of the oh i think it's 11 or 12 mature bucks i got in a 21 year period half of those were related to that technique at least probably six interesting were related where actually the does were so accepting the buck would get nervous but i would still be able to get for me 25 to 30 yards and, and have an opportunity. And, and you feel like that's consistent with what the sheep eaters were doing? I do. I think yeah. that that goes back to thinking about how they would have hunted in that area. And, and we did bighorn sheep research. We ground darted bighorns. Uh, one year we darted 21 bighorn ewes, uh, which was a challenge. Uh, we need. We felt we wanted to get at least 20, and we got one more. But... Um, we kind of did this lost wallet routine where we just sort of meandered around them. And and then, you, in a way, you kind of betray them. You up and shoot them with, in that case, it was an immobilizing dart. But it was pretty effective. Sure. And, and I think that we as hunters today don't, well, we probably don't need to tap into those sorts of methods. But it's it's fun to dabble into that and reflect back on how, Earlier humans would have had to have done it in order to put food on the table. How do you feel like hunting, utilizing that method, changed your experience and changes your memories looking back? Yeah, and that's a good question. I I think that it kind of ruined me in a way because we had the luxury of living in the center of the lower 48's largest wilderness area, the Frank Church. Yeah. And even though it was any weapon hunting, and at the same time I was hunting, there was rifle hunters out there. But there's this vastness and ruggedness component to where you could go off and hunt an area that somebody might not have hunted for three years. So I could play that game, so to speak, of messing around with a behavioral approach to hunting. Where in so many places, uh, I mean, if you tried that, you just, you wouldn't be effective. Yeah. Yeah. There's... There's an interesting behavior dynamic that that shifts with animals within a remote wilderness area. Yeah. And the the barrier 
to that acceptance that you're talking about is less than it is if you're a mile into the woods here. Yeah. Um, there's town deer that yep. don't care about us. Right. And then there's deep wilderness deer that don't care about us. But the deer in between care very much. Right. Yeah, they do. Yeah. And I think the ones that are in the deep in the wilderness or mountains aspect now with the you know, wolves on the landscape, they just tend to be more alert, more aware. Oh, they have to be. Yeah, they've got to be. They just have got to, got to be. I spent a week in the Frank this spring um, on my jet boat uh, bear hunting. Oh, cool. Um, and we uh, we literally saw twice as many predators as we saw deer. Yeah, yeah. Uh, very think, few deer. Yeah. So disheartening. Yeah, it is. And and some of that, a lot of that is the fact they're not present. But some of that is related to the seasonality. And something about the Salmon River Mountains is it's there's still these big migrations that are intact. And like those bighorn sheep we did research with, they had the longest migration from true winter range to where they would lamb. It was 45 miles, linear mm-hmm. miles. and But all that was contained within the Frank Church wilderness. Mm-hmm. Um, and deer kind of do something along those lines. They're pretty migratory. And, um, but on the other hand, in the spring, when you're bear hunting, you should see them because they're there for green up. Yep. So, but I'm just saying, you know, that's a phenomena of that piece of country. And I know Fred Bear and uh, Glenn St. Charles, they did a famous bow hunt in the 60s. They floated the middle fork of the salmon and, um, and then a little bit of the main. And there's pictures of Fred up on a, top of a mountain looking down in this awesome canyon and that was those pictures were taken about 15 miles from where we lived for 21 years tell me more about that like what what compels you or what brought you to live inside a wilderness for that long well frankly uh 1982 when we first went there we had two different tenures we were there from 82 to 90 back in Legrand from 90 to 97 back in idaho from 97 to 2010 and the first go around, it was a professional job opportunity. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was, you know, we were 25. What was your job? Uh, Holly and I were hired as the the managers of the field station. And the University of Idaho had basically um, allowed an outfitter to lease the site. And he and his, and his wife did caretaking duties. They kept the place up and, mm-hmm. and kept their 30 head of stock there and, and did their business, but the university wanted to go with a new model, and in part they were feeling at that time in the early 80s, they wanted to have more use of the facility. So um, uh, basically that lease for them was phased out, and we were hired as the first people to be full-time managers of the place. And as it started out, it was pretty much to be honest, caretaking duties. Um, we did try and develop some educational type programs, but you know, we were in our mid twenties and there's only, you only have so much background to be able to get those sorts of things initiated. And, and we helped on research projects, a Bobcat study and a Cougar study a little later on. And Holly did her master's research on bighorn sheep. And that was kind of our science side of that job, um, that we did there. And, and then later, like in the later 80s, we developed these internships where undergraduates would come 
spend the summer with us. And by that time, you know, we'd spent five or six years there full time and we had more to offer from an educational perspective. And the students would get involved in whatever we were doing, which at that time was pretty intensive work with bighorn sheep. Um, we were tracking them to their lambing areas and trying to document, oh, production of lambs, um, mortality of lambs, causes of death, and recover carcasses on the sheep that had died from disease. So how would you describe the scientific method? Um, in general or per, pertaining to the work we did, like with bighorn sheep? Let's say pertaining to the work that you did. Okay. Well... That was a very much a management-driven project because there was concern about the numbers starting to drop off in, uh, in sheep that were being counted in February. And lamb numbers were down, and we had actually observed coughing okay. in the, during the rut, the bighorn rut. So, did, so it, did it start with a question? It started with a question, yeah. And, and what was the question? The question was, basically, are the sheep dying from disease? Okay. And, and then if they're dying from disease, what is that disease? Mm -hmm. So, and this was like in the 80s, and it was right as Pastorilla uh, and other, you know, Pastorilla hemolytica and Multocida and all those variations of what ultimately caused pneumonia in sheep was spreading around Idaho and parts of Montana, and I think even some of here with these sheep in the Snake River country. And, but it wasn't known for sure. You know, there was other things that were killing sheep. It just seems like they're kind of pre-programmed to die from one thing or another. And, and there had been contact, known contact with domestic sheep and wild sheep. Although the sheep we were working with were like three herds removed. They were quite isolated. So another part of the question was, were the sheep that were disease-affected out in the outside country, where there was known interaction with domestics, were they somehow transferring back to where we were in the deep wilderness? And I guess um, to answer that, ultimately, it was yes, it was. But before we get to the conclusion got a few other pretty critical okay. steps in there so we go from a question to a hypothesis right yeah so what was the hypothesis well the hypothesis would would have been that the limiting factor on that population was driven by disease okay and and so from our perspective you know we weren't ones to be diagnosing identifying exactly what that disease agent was. Sure. I mean, it could have been something different. It could have been something unrelated to domestic sheep as well. And so we were basically collecting carcasses and sending them off to the lab. Okay. That's what it amounted to. But yeah. we collected enough of them that um, the lab was able to culture out and cultivate at that time one of the earlier pastorilla strains that was being identified which was pastorilla hemolytica, which caused hemorrhaging within the lung tissue. And, and ultimately, pneumonia was the cause of death. And it was pretty, it, was, it wasn't 
immediate. It wasn't like they were born and then they died three days later. It was something that occurred after they'd been up and running for a while. It's like it had to gradually shut down their their lung uh, function. But it was primarily in lambs and yearlings? It was also in adults, but it was most prevalent. And the, the lambs were the ones that were the least capable to mm-hmm. live with it. And there was some um, sheep ewes that probably developed an immunity to it, you know. And, and I always felt you need to catch, get a hold of those sheep and, and perpetuate them. Right, create know. a vaccine based Cre- on. Yeah, yeah, basically, yeah. But that wasn't done in that environment. And, you know, and we did things like we put out ivermectin on mm-hmm. the winter range, and which the bears loved. They would take our ivermectin blocks and eat the whole block in one setting. So <laughs> had some thoroughly wormed bears back there. <laughs> A bunch of uh, people are using ivermectin for uh, a, a COVID preventative now. Yeah. And uh, the <laughs> the science says don't do that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a good dewormer. Yeah, it's a great dewormer. I won't take anything away from them there. <laughs> it is a good dewormer. Yeah, but those were, you know, that was high adventure. And, and like I said, we were relatively young. At the, by the time we were doing that cheap research, we were 30-ish in that time frame and uh, physically very capable to get out and climb around in the places where the sheep went and we got in some pretty darn hairy spots in cliffs where we were scooting oh, yeah. out a ledge to recover i remember one time scooting out a a ledge on the cliffs across from taylor ranch uh, the cliff creek cliffs and and the u was acting kind of aggressive to me but then to something else that i couldn't quite see and she had a coyote backed up in this crevice oh really and it was like she was you know splitting her defensive time between me and the coyote huh you know i talked with a sheep biologist here a few years ago and uh, she was finding sheep that had fallen and um you know were very much decayed but she was listing those sheep that had fallen to their deaths as um as being killed from bacterial pneumonia Hmm. Um, and that, that seemed, that seemed inappropriate to me, yeah. but, um, sheep don't naturally fall very often. We no, know that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, her, her position was basically that, you know, these sheep wouldn't fall if they didn't have an inner ear infection that was causing an equilibrium and Im- balance. Well, it would take a lot of analysis to say that conclusively. <laughs> it, it, it's an ugly thing for that to show up in yeah. data like that. Yeah, that would be. And, yeah. uh, and some of that is certainly going on. These uh, these sheep are, are an interesting thing. And I, I'm maybe unfairly critical of them, but I'm certainly critical of, of the sheep that I see in Hell's Canyon and in, in the Salmon River Canyon as well because they – very much seem like a livestock animal. Most of them yeah. are ear tagged at least once. A lot of them have radio collars. Um, they they look like livestock and, and get handled yeah. like livestock, and, and they really don't show much natural fear. Fear, yeah. I do think sheep are kind of weird that way on fear. I think they're highly intelligent, and actually rams, you know, we would take pictures. We've got thousands of photographs of rams butting heads and being around them 20 to 30 yards and but they're not like that when they're being hunted. It's like they can flip this switch and, mm. and they become a much more evasive animal. Well, they and, live in an incredible place. Yeah, they do. They live in incredible 
incredible country. And and actually, you know, the Rams were we we weren't doing we weren't doing any radio calling with Rams. It was we were specifically looking at the reproduction and recruitment side of that. So we were working with ewes and lambs. Yeah. And um, and we you know there were some Rams that seems like we collected not very many, maybe one or two in a decade time period. Or there weren't many. There were some that would die from um, pasture a little bit. I don't know if they were just more resistant or um, just the nature of their, the way they function, they wouldn't pick it up. But, of course, it's transferred nose to nose, and as we all know in the rat, there's going to be that type of contact. Yeah. Generally, they're less gregarious than the ewes. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely so. It, It, I don't know. It was interesting to ponder, speculate the density of bighorns there like when the sheep eaters were around, um, compared to the time that we were doing work with them, you know, the basically the nine, 80s and 90s. Do you think there were a lot more sheep? It's all indications were that there were. Yeah. But uh, we had a diary, 1895 to 1900, the Caswell diary, from three brothers that homesteaded and discovered gold at Thunder Mountain. You know, they were pretty pretty well-known Idaho frontiersmen, and they, um, the numbers they mentioned were pretty comparable to what we would see, but the distribution was different. They were seeing them further up the drainage mm-hmm. in what would be mm, less bighorn-type habitat than where we lived and, and saw them. So, mm. you know, the archaeologists felt that the magnitude was probably three to four times greater. and But I don't know what the basis was for that. Um, there weren't elk. There were not. No, we found, there was like, in the archaeology stuff, there was like one elk bone. Wow. And, and that was you know, one part of an elk bone. It was a pretty insignificant component. There was known to be elk in Chamberlain Basin. Mm-hmm. And fur trappers with Hudson Bay Company um, had reported that. So I just don't think they were at a very high density. Elk, they can habituate anywhere, yeah. can't they? Yeah, and and, and dehabituate or whatever sure. you want to call it. Yeah. yeah. No, it's... Uh, they don't like pressure, but they can they can make it home wherever they end yeah. up. Yeah, that's true. You know, I, I think that the next you know, world record Rocky Mountain elk is going to come from Kentucky. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. Yeah. Pennsylvania, yeah, ex- maybe. Exploiting a new habitat. But, yeah. I mean, yeah. We, we go from, it, think of all the elk habitat in Oregon and how diverse it is. Yeah. And they do very well in all of it. Right. We have elk on the beach. Exactly. We have elk yeah. in the rainforest. We have elk mm-hmm. in absolute desert. Um, in the Steens Mountains and in, in the Alpine wildernesses everywhere. Right. Yeah. No, they're highly adaptable. Crazy. Crazy yeah. animal. Yeah. They've got a few weaknesses in, in how they function, which I think wolves have brought to light. Um, and some of that might be habitual tendencies to spend the winter on in such and such a place that makes them more vulnerable. Yep. And, I think especially early on, after a while through learned behavior, they seem to adapt better. But what we saw on Big Creek is once the wolves showed up, 
uh, in any kind of significant number, um, the elk change their behavior. And not real quick, though. They were a little slow to respond, and that change was to go into the rocks. What I found in the elk surveys that I did this spring is the herds of elk that were less than 30 had 0% calf survival or close to it. And then the herds of elk that were 100 plus, which is not something I'm used to seeing, especially in that area. Yeah. Um, they had tons of calves. Yeah. Tons of calves. Yeah. Well, it's kind of the muskox type thing. You know, they can, I don't know. They, You've got more adults to provide some element of protection yep. is part of it. And there's all those extra eyes for earlier detection. You know, there's just a number of variables. Sure. But, you know, up here in the, the upper Imnaha area where I archery hunt, uh, there's times when we'll see in bow season in September herds of two to 300 head. Mm-hmm. And you know that that grouping like that's related to wolf contact, yeah. wolf harassment. Yeah. And what were you studying with bobcats? We basically were helping a Ph.D. student who was doing a, a density, a general biology study on bobcats. And it really wasn't known what there was for numbers of bobcats in the Frank Church or in that central Idaho block of wilderness. And, um, and he found the densities were fairly low, mm. low to medium, I guess, compared to other parts of Idaho. Certainly there's parts of Idaho that it... Idaho that had much higher densities. Yeah. Is that and a prey base issue? It's probably related to prey base. Um, now, we saw some interesting things that seemed like they were somewhat desperate, like bobcats killing deer. Yeah. And, you know, tracking the time from they jump on the deer to the time that they finish it off. And they've taken a beating. Sure. Usually by the time they make a kill of that deer. I'm glad bobcats aren't bigger. <laughs> yeah, they're ferocious. They would rule the world. <laughs> they would rule the world. They've got, <laughs> they've got such an attitude. <laughs> it was fun. They, they were really a lot of fun to, to capture. And we primarily were using these cage traps. and um, They're pretty vulnerable to that, too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, and after a while, they recognize they're going to get a chicken meal. <laughs> so they're not stupid. Free lunch. <laughs> yeah, free lunch. Oh. Uh, but it was it was fascinating, you know, to see what their home range was, the males versus the females. And they just seemed to have a pretty low uh, reproductive rate. Yeah. So they just never got very dense. And, what about the mountain lion study? Well, the mountain lion study, of course, that place has a very deep history of mountain lion research. And it goes back to Morris Hornacher's work in the 60s. I'm not familiar and, with that. Okay, Dr. Hornacher is considered... No, if he's probably the premier academic science knowledge on uh, mountain lions or cougars in North America, Harley Shaw is is parallel in the Southwest. But, okay. but Morris, uh, he did his original um, graduate work with grizzly bears in Yellowstone uh, in the very early '60s with the Craigheads. Sure. And then he went on to do his doctoral work, decided to do it on something different, and he picked cougars, mountain lions, and uh, picked the Big Creek drainage. So he did his research. He was actually a student uh, with the University of British Columbia at the time. 
but that led to a faculty position at U of I. And he, in the 60s, was he and his houndsman, Wilbur Wiles, were renting space at Taylor Ranch from the Taylors, mm -hmm. Jess and Dorothy Taylor. And ultimately, it was that, that, that his interaction with Jess, in particular, um, convinced the Taylors to sell to the University of Idaho and create that field station. But Morris's work was very foundational. You know, it was before telemetry. Uh, they were doing mark and recapture of cats and covering a lot of ground. And the density of cougars was undoubtedly higher at that time than any of the following decades where there was continued work. He had another, he had a PhD student, John Seidensticker, follow up his work. And then there was the bobcat study and a blank and work with cougars, except for anecdotal related to what was observed with doing the bobcat work. And there was some, a couple, there's at least a couple bobcats that were killed by mountain lions. Sure. And, but that led to a renewed look, see, at cougar and cougar density in the late 80s. And we got involved. That's when we first got involved, really, with working with cougars was at that time. And so we put out collars, and this is all pre-wolf. It's uh, when the deer population was fairly stable but was beyond a peak, elk numbers were on the increase. So I think that was a period of a pretty high density of cats. And then we came back in 97, you know, skip a decade. And, uh, and one of the main reasons we went back to Taylor Ranch was the opportunity through the Hornocker Institute to do research on cougars in the presence of wolves. That was the, the theme, the thesis, the question was, are these wolves dragging down the number of cougars or, or, and are they interacting? So what did you find? Do cats and dogs get along? Not very well. <laughs> they don't. Dogs are dominant, and they treat cats. <laughs> and then cats don't reproduce well. Yeah. That was kind of it in a nutshell. Yeah. And Were the wolves catching very many of them? You know, we weren't seeing direct catching that we were picking up. But even, we really wish we would have had GPS technology. You know, we were just on the cusp. There were some GPS callers around in the late 90s. But... One, they were expensive, and two, the bugs hadn't been worked out. Right. So we were using regular VHF collars, and um, we did notice when the wolves were around, the cats would do pretty radical movements. And we also noticed in monitoring three females um, over three- or four-year period that there was no reproduction. They couldn't successfully raise kittens. So... There was stuff going on that we were missing that you could assume was happening. Because we also documented males with those females. We knew that there was conception occurring. It's just they weren't able to, to raise them to adulthood. And one thing that we did very distinctly document and notice was that when the dogs hit a set of cougar tracks, they either backtrack or front track to see if they've made a kill, and then they take the kill. So the cougars were likely having to increase their kill rate sure. in order to make a go of it. We found a dead elk um, in the Frank when we were bear hunting, and I watched a coyote, uh, a couple bears, and a mountain lion uh, all visit that elk. Wow. And 
Man, I was waiting for there to be a wolf. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I had a wolf tag, two of them, just burning a hole in my pocket. And I was like, let this happen. And uh, it's... It was interesting to watch all those predators acting as scavengers sure. and, and, and sharing that resource. And I would love to know who done it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and you know, and that was actually another part of our objectives or our thesis was uh, who's making these kills. So we were finding, we were basically trying to cover 20, 20 miles a day on muleback or 15 to 20, depending on conditions up and down the main Big Creek Trail and the tertiary, the side trails. We were, we were covering ground, looking for raven activity. Raven eagle activity is how that was our whole focus. The search and rescue birds? Yeah, the search and rescue birds. <laughs> and then we would watch them to try and narrow in, and then we'd go do a carcass search and found an, a lot of carcasses, you know, like 150 to 200. I don't remember the exact count now with that method. And it was all about being able to cover ground and being able to find the birds. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes we had a minimum number of things radio collared, both wolves and cougars. I think we had like three or four cougars and about the same number of wolves. But by the time we were done doing our research, there was either four or five packs there. So we had a very minimal number of, of uh, the wolves collared. This is incredible stuff. You ever consider writing a book about it? Yeah, actually. Um, you know, it's, some of it's in our book, the 7,003 Days book that Holly and I finished uh, four or five years ago. But we decided our adventure aspect of our life should take priority for our first writing. But we've both always felt that we needed to put the science observational part into something. Our problem in the competitive science journal world, which we were starting to see back when we were doing the active field work, you know, in the late 90s, early 2000s, was we weren't getting the numbers. And, you know, especially competing with projects, they're using GPS collars to find kills and look at carcass utilization, all those sorts of things. We were a little bit hamstrung by the logistical difficulty we had. But on the other hand, that logistical difficulty gave us some insights that I think are missed today with current methods because we were having a track. We were looking endless hours with binoculars. And you're kind of absorbing what's going on in the environment, listening, looking all the time to try and get that little piece of information. You know, Where's that kill? And then find the kill. Who did it? Uh, a lot of times you couldn't tell, but a lot of times you could tell. And we were involved in developing the form. I don't know if this is good or bad. That um, ODFW and, and other Western state agencies use for determining cause of kill. Mm. You know, was it done by a wolf or was it done by something else? Gotcha. <laughs> the positive, possible, probable, um, that sort of a scenario for evaluating who made the kill? And then what were those elements of evidence? And, you know, from from our perspective, we didn't have a huge thing at stake. Like, say, the livestock industry has a lot more at stake. Yeah. For, you know, for us, it's uh, these tendencies that uh, wolves were tending to kill the neonates, the young of the year, and they were also 
killing old cows. Right. And and that was a kind of an obvious finding. And uh, cougars, uh, you know, after you find over a hundred of these, you start to see patterns that really are indicative. And there's times that you just can't tell. Right. But I would say I felt that at least 80% of the time we could tell. And it could have been a case of a flip-flop on who was the scavenger and who was the killer. But um, I don't know. You know, you, you get looking at the pattern that wolves kill versus the breaking of the neck of a cougar. And uh, in some cases, coyotes or bobcats, which are just not a clean kill in a lot of cases, unless there's multiple coyotes. And, and I thought we became pretty proficient at it. So in today's world, I have a little bit of a struggle with, um, man, we just couldn't get beyond a possible. It's like, come on. It's got to be a probable, at least. Look harder, you know. Analyze what you're finding. And, and, I, and I do think that agencies have gotten better with more experience, but there became almost legal... Um, barriers you know there's so much at stake for it where we weren't as bound by that sure so now there's there's significant political pressure to not say that a wolf yes. kill is is probable exactly or confirmed i know yeah. it yeah yeah and no there's been of course cases where you know there's an abundance of evidence that it was wolves but you know it's still not considered confirmed yeah and and that that's tough. It's tough for everybody involved. Um, and uh, you know, we we did a, a, a wolf podcast where we talked a lot about that. But tell me a little bit more about Seven Thousand and Three Days. Okay, this book, which um, I knew, I felt after our first tenure there, which we left in nineteen ninety, mm-hmm. and I felt at that time I wanted to write a book about our first eight years, and I kind of got started. But then I got involved. I worked for ODFW doing cougar and bear research out of the ground. I just flat out did not have time to write a book. Yeah. And, you know, I was at the, the whim or the call of all these houndsmen that kept treating cougars and bears that we were trying to put radio collars on. So um, I just kind of put it off. But then when we had the opportunity to go back in 97, um, I, my initial thinking was, you know, by... 2000, I'm going to get that book cranked out. But again, there was so much going on. We'd experienced a massive wildfire ecologically, Big Creek, and that piece of the Frank Church was kind of turned upside down by all this fire. And it's like, well, I don't want to write something yet. You know, we're in the middle of something really big. We need to be able to talk about how it ends up. Right. So, um, didn't do it there. But the basis of this book, the 7003 name, comes from the the daily diary that we kept. Okay. And we had 7003 days of diary that we did. We felt job-related. Um, you know, somehow we had to account to the university for them to pay us checks that we were doing something. Right. So we would just write down the main events of the day. And from 82 to 90 when we did that, it was pretty boring, actually. We didn't capture kind of unique sightings, uh, events, adventures. 
But when we went back in 97, in between 97 and 2010, I knew that we needed to, if we had something unique happen someday, we really needed to describe it. So, and I'm really glad we did because that became the the foundation of the book. Started the book just writing, pulling out the actual excerpt from that day, and it did not flow. I mean, it was just real herky-jerky. I didn't like it. And um, I knew there was no way a publisher would like it. So I kind of modified it. I did one modification on it, and um, and I thought it was worth showing to somebody. So we took it to Caxton Press in Caldwell, and Caldwell, Idaho, and and they took a look at that and uh, said, you know, you got something here. You've got great adventure, but you don't have a theme that really blends with the theme we like to publish, which is history. You know, and it, preferably Idaho, but it can be anywhere in the Northwest, and I know they've really expanded with that quite a bit. They're doing yeah. quite a bit in Oregon now, but uh, publishing historical excerpts. But mm. So I went back into that, and I connected it to a theme of old Idaho and us occupying a time there between 82 to when we left in 2010, a real transitional time between the old ways and the new ways. There were some constants that you could say were new, relatively, such as aviation, which sure. ever since the late 20s has been a part of the Idaho backcountry. But, um, and even that changed some over time. But things like the backcountry radio, which to me was really, a, I think, one of the big, the biggest items that earmarked there's a transition going on was when that gave way to satellite internet and people who lived in the backcountry and worked in the backcountry um, preferring to use the internet as opposed to the backcountry radio. But the backcountry radio, it just flat out created a culture, a place. That was what we all called the inside, here, out, you know, more habituated, civilized parts of Idaho was the outside. We were in the inside. And and that is a theme that I tried to convey in the book, along with a number of adventures we had, running from forest fires and running from uh, ice going out on the stream and um, just a whole number of things, observations with predators and um, and experiences, some experiences with students. And Can I, people buy this online? Yeah, on Amazon or directly from Caxton okay. Press. We'll put a, put a link down there in the podcast description so you folks can find that. Highly recommend it. It's a beautiful book. Beautiful history. Jim, what's your involvement with Oregon Hunters Association? Okay. Presently and most recently, I have become the Northeast Director on the board. Uh, Vic Coggins had previously held that position. Uh, retired district bio here from Enterprise. Spent 46 years basically right here. So my area of uh, involvement is Northeast Oregon. And and that's most recently. Prior to that, um, as of the end of 20, up until the end of 2020, from about 2015 to the end of 2020, I was the conservation director. That was kind of a new position for OHA to have a conservation person. 
which basically in the in that case translated to a biologist a natural resource professional that could provide informed input to decision making entities primarily ODFW but also the forest service and the BLM and federal agencies well that's tremendous for a hunting organization to have somebody with your depth of experience um, and professional acumen to be able to, you know, speak with the state agency and and do so from a place of of resource and authority. Yeah, yeah, it, it was great. Um, there was one little sticky, tricky part, and that was the fact that my wife Holly, um, in, in that same block of time, the whole time basically, was a Fish and Wildlife Commissioner. So there was times I had to... Good thing she hadn't been hunting in Africa. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. But (laughs) that's that's a a separate sad story. Yeah, that's another story. (laughs) But anyway, she... uh, Now, we we were... There was times when she had to declare potential conflict of interest when I would give testimony. Um, But I think for the people that knew us... They had no concern about Holly listening or being swayed by me. Because <laughs> that's the one thing I think that probably rarely or maybe even never happened in our 40-some years of marriage was me convincing her that she's making the wrong decision yeah, about something. That's uh, that's thin ice. Yeah. Not, not worth standing on. No, no, not worth standing on. But it... it I'm really glad I worked for that organization. I had worked for uh, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. I was their first executive director shortly after we left Taylor Ranch. And um, and that organization's blossomed. They do a lot of good things. but They uh, do a lot of bad, too. Like, they really promote hunting with llamas, which has got to be the worst crime against masculinity, amongst other things, (laughs) that I can think of. (laughs) Yeah. How do you yeah. feel about llamas? Llamas uh, in the backcountry. You know, I'm not a fan of them, and it's because, <laughs> and it's it's because I'm a mule and horse guy. Yeah, and they just are not compatible. <laughs> <laughs> no, they don't have any business being in there. Come on, get out of here with your llamas. It's crazy. Yeah, but that that kind of led to, um, yeah, I guess I got the, oh the familiarity with how sportsmen's organizations function in yeah. today's world. Sure. I think it was really an asset when I did go to work for OHA, which I really preferred for a number of reasons. Yeah. You know, one, it's state level. It's more local. Yeah. And I, I just, I really, I don't know, found a happy, happy home with OHA. So outside of all of that, I'd like to talk a little bit about the proposed archery regulation changes in Oregon and and I don't want to talk about it necessarily you know for my own sake but I've had more people ask me to do an episode just on this one subject than than any other subject and it's it's really it's it's not something that I can personally speak to on a state level but I feel like you can and uh i can you kind of give us a breakdown of what the situation is, what the proposal is, and then where you're standing on it? Sure, you bet. So basically, this is a portion of 
what's called by ODFW regulation simplification, or it was originally. But it manifested, and they, they know this now, into something that was broader. And there, you know, there was the aspect of, the simple aspect of making the regs easier to read, which they're still difficult, but there have been improvements to the regs through this process that started three years ago. And us sport group representatives were forewarned that perhaps the biggest focus three years down the line, this is three years ago, was going to be on archery regulations because they really hadn't been changed or studied, analyzed, reviewed uh, fully mm-hmm. in about 20 years. You know, there was an archery review. There's been a couple that occurred in that time period, but not the full gamut. Yep. So that occurred, and I think ODFW um, felt they needed to hear from different segments of the public. Uh, one was the organized aspect, which is OHA, OBH, OOC, you know, all those entities that um, represent sportsmen's groups. But then there was the general public, too, which they tapped into primarily through a survey um, uh, that, you know, random survey X number of people were selected to fill out the survey. And then there was a proportion that said, what's your, well, there was a question that said, what is your preferred form of hunting? Is it archery? Is it gun? Is it rifle? So then they, they segmented off and they analyzed archery. Those that responded archery independently. And I think they got some good information as to, is there too much crowding? Is there not enough opportunity? Has it changed significantly? What would you like to see in terms of improvement? And those responses were used to generate points of discussion and ultimately points of staff-driven recommendation for change. But that was kind of one side of it, and that's more the social side of it. And then there's the biological aspect, and then there's the focus of where the elk are, which is these 16 or so units that are pretty much contained um, by the Blue Mountains, the Eagle Cap, Hell's Canyon. Yeah, anywhere in eastern Oregon that has a tree. The, yeah, right, and it has elk Yeah, pretty much. I mean, the Cascades, of they kind of got left out of this, ultimately, as it turned out. Yeah, completely. So, yeah, and the original proposal was to go controlled for archery for elk. Well, of course, there was controlled for deer, for mule deer, and that, as we know, was that was a very biologically driven one. That, that was something that you and I worked on together. Right, we yeah. did. We did work on together, and, you know, you provided significant input on that as I did too through OHA, and that was kind of a no-brainer. But this elk one's a little more complicated. And we, about a year ago, pushed to stall it a year because we felt we needed to better assess beyond surveys and, and hear from more individual archers and more thoroughly from the sport groups what they wanted to see from the social side and crowding, etc., And at the same time, give the department more of an opportunity to really nail down the biological aspect, particularly with bull escapement. Bull escapement is driving this. It's the number one biological 
factor. How do you define bull escapement? Okay, so in a in an annual context, it's how many bulls of a mature age class survive okay. all forms of hunting. Yep. And say, for instance, uh, in recent years, the Keating and Pine Creek have gone down to single digits. There are one six, and I think the other's eight. Um, and that's mature bulls per hundred? Per hundred cows. Per hundred cows, you know. okay. And then in the Minum, yes, not so good. Um, Chesnim, better. Imnaha, better. But nothing at the optimal desired amount. The numbers, the total numbers of elk in a lot of these cases are around management objective. But the proportion of bulls, either 10 per 100, 15 per 100, 20 per 100, those are the increments that are used. We're not being met. Sure. So where's the harvest occurring and where could there be reductions in that harvest? So archery was identified as a place that there was wiggle room, so to speak, to cut back. And, and there had been a gradual increase in these general hunt areas of participation that's reported in the reporting that everybody does at the end of the year. And the Starkey unit, the Hepner unit, Ukiah units were all on this upward plane on participation of bow hunters, but downward plane in the bull escapement category. So anyway, it kind of started with, with a few examples like that. And then the department, with more time, had the opportunity to look at these other units and fly another year's worth of data. Of course, COVID didn't help because they basically missed a lot of the units didn't get adequately counted in 2020 because of COVID. So I think that probably helped us in a way with buying another year to evaluate the situation. So ultimately, to kind of re reduce the length of this story, um, we were successful, we being all the sportsmen's lobbying groups and to some degree the general public, in shrinking down the area that was going to go to controlled so now it's like 11 or 12 new units. But again, they're a premium. They're where the elk are. Um, but within those, we've been negotiating for zones, such as a backcountry zone. The Eagle Cap is one. Um, another one down in that desolation, murderers correct that area, that maybe are a little better off bull escapement. And a lot of that's due to sheer remoteness, kind of the the Idaho phenomena. Yep. Um, but perhaps they could be looked at differently. And, um, and then the Cascades and Western Oregon are right now slated to be left in general hunts. Now, some of the organizations like OBH um, and OOC – which is Oregon Bow Hunters and Oregon, Oregon Outdoor Council. Council, correct, are interested in doing this in a stepwise progression. There's some real merits to that, and perhaps starting with the have to declare west or east. But that survey I mentioned indicated that 75% of bow hunters prefer to hunt the east side. Yeah, no kidding. So the concern is it would have a negative. It would have a backfire effect with so many more people wanting to hunt over here. 
it feels unfair that somebody who lived in Western Oregon, where most of our population is, could draw a tag for a controlled hunt in Eastern Oregon. They could hunt the entire Cascades, all of Western Oregon, and that unit in Eastern Oregon. And that part's going to be done away with. When you have a controlled hunt, you're bound to that. I think that that was pretty unanimously felt it was time for. And, and that's that portability aspect. That would be great. Um, it, it really, I think, would help a lot yeah. with crowding. Yeah. So, you know, and there's some of these, not all this is bad. It's just kind of a hard pill to swallow because it's, it's pretty extensive and it feels like it's coming fast. Although we have known about this for three years. And it's just, unfortunately, the way things turn with the sportsman entities in particular, it's sort of a, you know, you don't really deal with it until it's right there on your plate in front of you. But we are at that point now. So what's going to happen with this is that it's going to reduce the number of hunters per unit during archery season. Yes, ultimately. And and what it's, although, you know, the, the department has, as you probably remember, when you fill out your report card at the end of the year, you indicate where you spent the majority of your time hunting. And that information is used to, to help formulate how many people would be able to hunt in each unit. If but, the first question of that survey was, are you going to answer these questions honestly? <laughs> They would throw out <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> everything. <laughs> Boy, you cut, cut to the quick with that one, James. <laughs> yeah, and that's, that is bothersome. But I will say this about the department, and we provided some criticism that we didn't feel like we were having enough input opportunity, but it really has improved quite a bit in the last year and with there's been a number of sport group leader meetings there's a number of forums where just an interested sportsman can can be involved do you think it's possible that if we reduce the number of hunters that we're going to actually increase the number of bulls that get killed ah. you know i think it's i think it's a, an equation that is a lot more than just archery i think it involves spike hunts i think it involves cow hunts I think it involves an elk distribution phenomena that we just never seem to be able to get on top of. Yeah. I'd and like to, I'd like to see more more cow harvest. I would too. And yeah. you know, I'd be happy to have the same hunting opportunity and end up shooting a cow. Yeah. I but, tell people all the time in one of the things that I hear repeated the most and I I don't think that people actually actually believe it. I think they're just repeating something that they've heard someone else say is that they're drawn to archery for the challenge. Yeah. And it is way harder to kill a cow during archery season than it is a bull. It is. Way way harder. harder. So don't come at me with this challenge (laughs) thing and then say you want to hunt a bull. Cows taste better. They're harder to hunt. There's more of them. Yep. There's an ecological benefit to you harvesting that cow. Yeah. Like don't, don't, Come at me with this. Yeah. If you want to kill a bull because you think the antlers look cool, just be honest about that. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. Th- that's I'm cool with that. Yeah. I, exactly. Just be honest. Yeah. yeah with yourself and everybody else. Exactly. Ideally, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. The person that that every year takes a cow with a bow, 
They're a hell of a hunter. That is gangster. <laughs> it is so much harder. It's like 10 to 1, my opportunities yeah. at bulls over cows. I know. I, yeah. yeah I was, while you were talking, I was thinking about that in the Omaha <laughs> unit. I don't think I've been within bow range of a cow in three years, four years maybe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good luck. It's yeah. tough. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, ODFW listens to, to OHA. They really yeah. do. Um, and you you always come at them from a position of, of knowledge and respect, and, and that gets returned. I think that that's hugely beneficial, and, and you represent all hunters to, to the best of your ability as a sportsman's group, um, regardless of whether they're a member or not. And yeah. you don't get enough credit for that. And, and you can't represent everybody's individual interest. Yeah, it's tough. It, it's impossible. It is. Yeah. Um, but you, you really are doing the best you can for the resource and for the tradition. And I know yeah. tradition is extremely important to you. Yeah, it is. It is. It is important. Um, it's also important to me opportunities that other forms of hunters have. You know, be they muzzleloader hunters, uh, rifle hunters. And we within OHA, we have to listen to that because we're pretty much divided up. I think as a sportsman's group in the state, we probably have the biggest percentage of hunters that at some point do any and all forms. You yeah. know, they bow hunt, they muzzleloader hunt, they rifle hunt. You know, They might be into long-range shooting. Uh, a lot of them are really good. I mean, they take it seriously. Yeah. Extremely good hunters. And it's to me, it's an honor and a privilege to represent them, although sometimes it's a challenge and, and it's important to like we will have our wildlife lands committee meetings with other board members and they'll say no wait a minute remember the hunting that goes on in oregon only 30 some percent of it's done by bow hunters there's the rest of us that are firearm hunters and we've got a little bit of a stake in what's left for us so to speak so it's a challenge but 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 you know we try and do the best that we can and we try and assure that there will be a flow of recruitment of people coming into hunting and people that come into it with a certain level of knowledge, you know, and your podcast and, and other media type opportunities for sportsmen today is just incredible compared to when I started in 1969, you know, there was nothing. There was sports of field and outdoor life and, and there was one I guess there was Archery World. There was actually two archery publications. Uh, Bow and Arrow and Archery World were two that I can think of. And then Bow Hunter Magazine. And, and I just ate that stuff up. But I also read Outdoor Life. And I was interested in some of the African hunting that you would see there. And, and uh, no, it's important to get the information out. But this podcast opportunity really brings about a new educational experience for people. There's a lot of information on these things. Yeah, there is. And it's yeah. it's it's probably the most honest resource for information. Yeah. You know, you in my generation is so tired of getting their their news from a guy with a fake accent wearing makeup yeah. in a studio. Yeah. Um we're we're over that. We don't believe that anymore. Right. So as soon as you see something that's really polished and in like this perfect and neat edited little package, we, we distrust it. Yeah. You know, we want to know everything else because yeah. what we're getting there, that's not it. Yeah. Um, so I, 
I really appreciate this this form of communication and and just these conversations that I get to have. I love yeah. it. I mean, you have s- such cool experiences and and you know we get to sit down and, and have a conversation on purpose and that's right. pretty rare. Yeah, yeah. Today, no, it's it's great. It's a good thing. And there's a lot of material out there, a lot of subject matter. Yeah. You know, you mentioned the wolves and the wolf plan or wolf hunting and all that. And, you know, we could, you could do a continuous dialogue of sure. that or mule deer. You yeah. know, what, what can't, what should we be doing now with mule deer to bring mule deer back? And What do you think? What, what's something that, that the average uh, <sighs> guy or gal that, that cares about mule deer can be doing to help them? You know, I honestly feel, and I don't like to be a redneck, I like to be a level-headed biologist, but I do feel that continued pressure on coyotes is important. Yeah. Um, you know, whether it's somebody getting a trapper's license and trapping and or calling and hunting them. Respect them, but hunt them. They need to be managed. And, and really the same goes for any of the predatory species, you know. Hunt them with respect, but hunt them. What's your take and, on compensatory birthing with coyotes? Is that smoke or is it real? Gosh. I I can't totally buy into it from a pure biology standpoint. Um, it seems like the literature suggests that it does occur in some cases. Um, but I don't know. I guess, you know, to be honest, I'm not sure I know. Yeah. And I certainly don't. Yeah. I hate, you know, one thing I've learned as an aging scientist, wildlife researcher, naturalist, whatever, whatever I am, <laughs> is I I just, you know, I can't say things conclusively like I used to be able to when I knew less. And and I think that's maybe part of the process. <laughs> And I hate to be a fence walker, but I really don't like being a fence walker. But again, though, you know, I I do feel that we have got to manage those species that have direct effects and particularly on the young, the young oncoming, the recruitment aspect. Yeah. Yeah. We, we need fawns to survive. That's, that's the bottom line. And, you know, and nutrition, habitat, I, I just, I. You know, there's been so much focus on nutrition lately. And honestly, I don't see how it can change significantly, except for it can be improved through activities, management activities on the forest. There's a lot of habitat available. There is, yeah. Well, and, you know, everything from juniper removal and uh, patchwork logging. I mean, the works. There's all kinds of ways you can improve the habitat. But when it comes to sheer survival... And I think that makes for a healthier individual, which might slightly increase the chance of escaping a predator. But we've got predator numbers like we haven't had before. And really, to me, that's one of the big issues. And we've got human numbers, too, that are big. It's just... It's multifactorial. And it's never the one thing that you're mad about. It's a lot of things. It's a lot of things. It's a lot of things. But I, I agree with you. Like, if you can go out and shoot a coyote, silver star... If you can shoot a mountain lion, gold star. Yeah. Like those are ways that you can really significantly help a mule deer population, right. and they need our help. Exactly, they need our help. Yeah. And I, I guess my big thing on that is, you know, I, I think, you know, it's a cool opportunity to, to hunt, and you're doing a management yeah. t- 
tool or action. Sure. Sure. But people need to they need to do it respectfully too, so it's more palatable to their family members or their neighbor or whatever. You know, I'm not saying that it has to be that way, but I I just think that a level of buy-in should be one of the objectives. Yeah. And no, we we should be tactful. Yeah. There you we go. We should strive tact- for tact. Yeah. Tact is good. But no, coyote hunting is a great way to sharpen and, and increase your skills, to test your gear. You're certainly not going to hurt anything by shooting a coyote. Right. And chances are you're going to help. Chances are, yeah. So. On the species that we're trying, you know, if, if they weren't in such a dire condition, mule right. deer, it, it might be a little different. But I still really respect the the person who runs a trap line. I've done enough trapping to, to realize there is an art and a science to that. So much work. And it's a lot of work. And and it's a great management tool. And yeah. there's really not enough people that participate yeah. in that. And it's kind of a, a one of those dying arts. Yeah. And it's so, it's so misunderstood. And it's hard to get out there and, and talk about what trapping really is because people don't don't believe you or they don't want to right. hear it or they're not ready for it. You know, almost everybody's cool with trapping mice because mice right. affect almost everybody. Right. But as soon as it's something that you picture in a Disney movie, then suddenly, you know, trapping's really evil and it's it's just not. It's it's a spring powered handcuff. It's it's right. not that big of a deal. Yeah. I trap myself almost every time I go out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when we were doing wolf trapping for capture, I I felt those traps a few times and Yeah. Yeah. It's not that big of a deal. Not that big of a deal. Yeah. No, it's pressure. Yeah. It's pressure is what it is. But, yeah, well, that's society. But we need to keep perpetuating people that view nature in the manner that we do, which is respectfully, but utilize it. And, and participate uh, in it. Particip- yeah, there yeah. you go. That's a good good phrase. Yeah. Participation. Well, Jim, I thank you very much for your time. This you has bet. been an absolute pleasure. Um sitting out here on your porch you got a beautiful lawn watching all kinds of wildlife float past us in the air and i think your dog probably wants to play a little bit more fetch (laughs) (laughs) you bet well likewise james i really appreciate the opportunity besides good besides your book how do people find out more about you um boy let's see that's probably pretty much it okay Um, primarily the book and uh, oh, I, I usually write something in OHA magazine. Oh, okay. You know, so that's yeah. another thing. Read the book, read your articles, and leave you alone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm on Facebook, but I I don't know. I, <laughs> I track it, but I just never really truly get into it. Not in a daily manner anyway. Yeah. But. Alrighty, sir. Well, thanks again. Appreciate yeah, you. you bet. You bet, James. I live in an old cabin with bad to non-existent insulation and wood heat. That cabin can see snow every month of the year and needs a good amount of firewood stacked in the woodshed to carry through the colder months. This spring, as my woodpile turned to smoke and ash, I noticed something metal pushing out of the decades of sawdust and bark. I kicked at it and unearthed a Stanley thermos. The cup was missing and it showed more worn stainless steel than green. There were dents in the metal and the handle looked like a puppy had chewed on it, but it still hadn't leaked the old coffee I could feel slosh inside. It took me back to memories of cutting firewood with my dad, waking up early for an elk hunt, or going out to the canyons to gather cattle. 
A Stanley Thermos has the durability to survive whatever hard work you throw at it. You may find it carries memories as well as coffee. Learn more about their new and classic line of products at stanley1913.com or at your local sporting goods store. And catch you next week. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share the show with a friend. You can also rate the podcast and leave a review. Your support allows me to keep doing what I love, which is meeting incredible folks and sharing their stories with you. For more content and photos, follow the show on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast or me at Six Ranch Outfitters. This episode was produced by Emily Brannigan with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Art for the Six Ranch Podcast was created by John Chatelain and digitized by Celia Christofferson. Tune in every Monday for a brand new episode of the Six Ranch Podcast. I'll catch you next week.